0: minutes we will read from the gospel or excuse me the gospel 2nd Samuel chapter 7 we'll read from 2nd Samuel chapter 7 starting at verse 1 but for now i got to tell you last week after the services were over our guest speaker from the Gideon said to me boy you cover a lot of territory in one sermon and I said, well, the people are reading the Bible in 90 days and they cover a lot of territory in a week's time. And I have to manage all of that in a single sermon to the best of my ability. And listen, I'm having a ball. <laughs> I'm having a ball. And so I want to tell you how overjoyed I am with the participation in the Bible in 90 day reading, the small groups, the increasing numbers in worship, the, the way that we have... Seeing the Lord prosper us even throughout this COVID crisis, it's, it's proof that the Lord is at work here at Shiloh. And if I might be so bold, I think today's message will help, to, help us to understand a little bit of why things are working well according to the Lord's expectations. Because all we've ever sought to do, since I've been here anyway, is to figure out where the Lord is at work and then to join the Lord in it. And that makes all the difference. Up to this time in the readings, and I'd like to say something to your classes and the individuals who are reading because my wife reminded me yesterday that there is a little bit of a disconnect between where your classes might be and, and so forth as far as the schedule goes. And what I want to say to you with, my, with all my heart is don't be too anxious about where you are on the reading schedule, just stay with your group. Just let each of your small groups be in a covenant arrangement together about where you started. For the record, the preaching and the commentary that I write in Facebook in the Knowing God with Heart and Mind group is built around my having started the B90 process at uh, day one being April 12th. So if you're wondering where I am when you read my commentaries or listen to me preach, I started on April 12th. And I'm using uh, the uh, U-version Bible to read it to me out loud. And I'm following the B90 schedule that's in there. So that's where I am. But you don't have to be there. You don't have to be there. But the reason I take time to mention that to you is because if you are thinking, well, he's talking about stuff in the sermon I haven't heard yet. Well, that's all right. You know. That's why as the Gideon speaker pointed out, I try to cover such a broad swath every Sunday during this process. So by now in the B90 reading, I've noticed that God uses a certain phrase at least seven times up to this point. And the phrase is be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And in the context that I read it in the uh, Old Testament so far, Strong means not so much more powerful than your enemy, but strong enough to put your foot 16 inches in front of the other one. <laughs> you know what I mean? It depends on your stride. Some of you probably have much longer stride than me. But as, as, uh, as I see the word strong as it's describing what God desires of God's people in this context, it is have the strength to walk toward something that is dreadful to you you don't have to have the strength to bring down the walls of Jericho you don't have to have the strength to take on the Amalekite giants you don't have to have the strength you have to have the strength to to put one foot in front of the other and walk towards something that's dreadful So when God says, be strong and courageous, he wants you to have the strength of conviction to move towards something God told you to move toward. And then he tells you to be courageous. And as I've often said to you, courage and faith are an awful lot of the same thing. It means that you will do the thing that is inherently frightening to you. You'll do something even though everything in you says, I shouldn't do that and it's because of your faith in God that you do it. So when the people are told to be strong and courageous and they march toward the walls of Jericho, which were massive, and they see that among Jericho's defenders are giants, Amalekites, they're doing something that requires a great deal of courage just to walk in that direction, much less walk around the walls of Jericho, making yourself an easy target. and trusting that the captain of the Lord's hosts will defeat the enemy. That's what it means to be strong and courageous. And who is the captain of the Lord's hosts? Anybody figured that one out? You know, when Joshua comes across this guy who blocks his path, he falls and worships. And what we know from other places in the Bible is, is that if it's an angel, the angel's gonna say, cut that out. You don't worship me, I'm an angel. You worship the Lord. He falls and worships the captain of the Lord's hosts and does not get rebuked for doing so. In fact, the captain of the Lord's hosts says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. Who was the captain of the Lord's hosts? Maybe Jesus before we met him as a baby in Bethlehem. And so as you've been reading through this Bible, you begin to understand that there's a continuity from the beginning of this story to the end. And what you're going to remember as you read through these stories, I hope, is the lesson from Eden about how God produces a tree of life and says, look to this. This is trustworthy and true. And Satan creates a counterfeit that might as well be called a tree of death, because after eating of its fruit, death came into the world. And this is still the case even as you've read now about Joshua and his exploits, even now as you read about the judges. So what follows Joshua is a uh, is a 350-year span of anarchy and idolatry, right? After Moses and Joshua, all of a sudden the people are doing what they think is right in their own sight. And over a series of calamities, God raises up judges who are, well, colorful characters to say the least. I mean, what do you think of Samson? What a jerk. (laughs) You know, I mean, look at some of these characters. How many of you winced when you heard first that a uh, young girl Drove a tent peg through an enemy's temple. And then Deborah, the judge, sings a song about it. <laughs> woo That was exciting. And let's talk about some of these other judges. They're not exactly stellar examples of leadership and love for the Lord. And yet God raises them up. Why do you suppose this happens? Because God made a covenant And God never breaks God's promises. And so what you see between Joshua and the end of the era of the judges, which is marked by the arrival of King David, is a time when the people broke the covenant. They've had more than enough time to execute the one principal thing that God was adamant that they do, which was the year of Jubilee, and they didn't do it. Well, why didn't they do it? Because it's not really in their best interest to let the, the, the ground rest. It's not really in their best interest to give up debts that are held in their name. You know, it's not in their interest to let the slaves go free. So they decide that they'd rather not obey God on this one. What was he thinking anyway? Well, if you read the Bible up to this point, as I have, then you probably noticed that that everything God said would happen if they obeyed Him and kept the covenant was good and well-described, and everything God said would happen if they broke the covenant was also detailed in duplicate. If you remember, how many of you like reading certain things twice? I know when you read in the Old Testament, you go, you know what I hate about the Bible? It says certain things over and over again. It's like the you, why do I have to? Because the Lord really means it. <laughs> he really needs for you and the people that preceded you to get it. And so what did he say? You break this covenant and here's everything you can expect. Moses is getting ready to die and he says before I go just let me remind you of what you heard you know 30 40 years ago God said if you break this covenant here's everything you can expect and they broke the covenant and everything God said they could expect happened right you know this because you've been reading it and so now we get to this point in the judges where we're thinking what the heck went wrong right well let's just compare and contrast for a moment with Moses and Joshua you had men who were flawed but they were devoted to the Lord they were men who sought God's heart and mind and they above all else served the Lord in and of their own lives and so when people looked to them for leadership that was part of what they got They had a leader who was serving the Lord with all his heart, mind, and soul. And if they wanted to follow this leader, then that was part of following the leader. After Joshua, you don't see leaders like that emerge anymore. And then comes Samuel, right? Now you you've just finished Second Samuel, or 1 Samuel rather, and you, you've kind of gotten the picture of how he came on the scene. And do you remember what God promised? That the last judge was Eli, who was the priest. Which means he was supposed to be, you know, pretty solid. Jewish citizen right he was supposed to be instead he's got these two sons who are absolutely abominable characters and Eli's not much better but he at least encouraged Samuel and what did God say of Samuel he said I'm going to raise a servant who will know the heart and mind of God and oh by the way it was a Shiloh (laughs) So it turns out that if you seek the heart and mind of God, and people follow you, they'll follow you to the heart and mind of God. How do we know this? Well, because what we read after Samuel's arrival on the scene is how the people played that game that they played in the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden how when God confronted Adam about eating from the tree of death and Adam said, well, it was the woman that did it, (laughs) right? And then God goes to the woman and says, why did you eat from the tree of death? And she said, well, the serpent told me to. So everybody's passing the buck. Nobody's taking the blame. Now roll the clock forward to Samuel's day. And finally they have a leader who has a heart and mind devoted to the heart and mind of God. And God says, you know, through this guy, I think we can do some work together that will be good for the people. And what does Samuel tell them from the Lord? What's your problem? Why are you guys so messed up? How did you go from Joshua to total anarchy and idolatry? How did you go from knowing that the Lord himself Dwelled with you on the holy of holies, which is that place atop the Ark of the Covenant. How'd you go from that to being people who worship the box like an idol, who treat it like an object that's worshipped in the same way you worship the calf that you gave credit for taking you out of Egypt, the same way you worship the snake on a stick for saving you from the serpents, the same way you worship these horrific pagan? idolatries these pagan gods how would you turn my box or you know my throne into a box and worship the box that's what samuel's saying to the lord or through from the lord to the people and the people do this they go well it's because we don't have a king all the other nations have kings so you know if we had a king we probably wouldn't have messed up so bad do you hear that it's the same game over and over again in the bible there's a real thing and there's a counterfeit. And the people always go for the counterfeit because it looks better. Remember what Eve, remember what it describes Eve? She said, it says she looked at the fruit and it looked good. And so her eyes led her to sin. Okay? so. Now the people are saying, well, we see where all these other nations have kings and they're doing just fine. So you see, it's not our fault we turned the Ark of the Covenant into a box that we worship alongside all our other gods. And it's not our fault that we chose to do what we thought was right in our own eyes. It's because we didn't have a strong leader. And God's like, well, you know, you're right, but you're wrong. (laughs) You're right that when you have strong leaders who seek my heart and mind, And you follow them, you will find my heart and mind too. So you're right in that regard. But when you want a king like the other nations, then that is exactly what you're going to get. God told them. And you know, everything bad that God tells the people will happen if they choose to do what they think is right in their own eyes happens. As you read forward in the scriptures over the next a couple of uh, next week, really, one of the things you're going to discover is that God exacts a charge against the people 70 years of exile to make up for the fact that they didn't keep the Jubilee covenant. Everything God says will go wrong if you disobey God happened to those people. Everything. And there we have the, the people saying, We need a king like the other nations. And our problems will be solved, and Samuel, speaking for the Lord, says, "Then here's what you can expect to get, and they got it." And then along comes David. Now let's read King David's story from this part of his story, from second Samuel starting chapter seven, verse one. Now, when the king lived in his house, that's David, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more frequent, no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So now along comes David, and I like calling David the first rock. You see, David got it. Where where he's as rough as a cob like these judges that preceded him, he's also different because he's got a dose of Samuel's love for the heart and mind of God. So that God refers to David as a man after his own heart. And I think by implication, mind, you know, in other words, God is about reason and feeling. And so David makes this confession about how God should exist, you know, in a house. And what he's saying is is that I'm not treating that that throne of yours like a box. We're not worshiping the box anymore around here, Lord. We're worshiping you and in the spirit that Moses and Joshua worshipped you in the tent I wish to worship you in a permanent dwelling at the heart of the land you gave us. You see, this confession of David is a real deep expression of his love for the Lord and his authentic belief in the personal relationship between a person and their creator. And so, in that way, he's just like Peter, who is is uh, you know in the presence of Moses, actually as, at Mount Tabor, and he's in the presence of the prophet Elijah, and he sees his Lord Jesus glorified. And and then Jesus asks him, "So who do you say that I am?" And Peter says, "Oh, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the Living God. You're the one we've been waiting for." And Jesus says, "You're the Rock." It's that understanding, it's that comprehension of the real nature of our relationship that will bring about the fulfillment of everything God desires. And so in the same way that Peter confessed Christ as the son of the living God, David confesses that the living God needs to dwell among the people. And so he's changing the whole paradigm. And so for one brief moment in this journey of of the people of Israel, They have a king who gets it. Unfortunately, it doesn't last long. There's a great deal of pressure. But God says, even so, I will establish my house forever through your lineage. Did you read that passage with me that said that his Child, that David's descendant would sit on a permanent throne that would be in the house of God forever and that that child would bear the stripes of iniquity. Is that ringing any bells with you? He said that child would bear the stripes of iniquity. But that same child would then rule over the kingdom of God. So Joshua was the last really awesome leader they had until David came along and until David kind of came of age and came into his relationship with God. And between those times, it was anarchy and pagan idolatry. And you know, pagan idolatry could be easily summed up in modern terms as just being more devoted to the flesh and to the stuff that we prize. It's people not worshiping the throne of God as a box so much as worshiping a building where we gather to do church. Worshiping a book or worshiping a piece of furniture in the building or worshiping the building itself. And you found out over the last year you could worship God without the building, didn't you? You found out that the throne of God exists whether it has a house to dwell in or not, that the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, thanks be to Jesus Christ, is with us without the building. And so we have to avoid pagan idolatry the same way they did. And we have to recognize that it's not about flesh and things, but the Spirit of God. And when God sends a leader who seeks the hearts and mind heart and mind of God and drives the people towards the heart and mind of God so that their hearts and minds are engaged with the heart and mind of God, something really profound starts to happen. And you know, I can't help thinking that it's percolating around here because people who get their Bibles out and read them together find the heart and mind of God and then things start popping. So don't worship the stuff. Don't worship the symbols. Don't turn the living God who is present in this place right now into a box and then worship the box. Joshua understood that and he was a servant to the captain of the Lord's host. He was in effect a precursor to citizens of Christ's kingdom who live and move and breathe and have their being under the authority of the captain of the Lord's host Christ the King and oh by the way Joshua's name in Hebrew it's Yehoshua it's been shortened over time to be Yeshua and by the way the Greek pronunciation of Yeshua is Jesus and so the name means eternal name and Savior So God already had a plan that involved a fellow named Jesus back when the people were entering the promised land. Pretty cool, huh? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you use imperfect people whose hearts are devoted to your heart and mind, who seek you, and then by raw charisma given by your anointing with the Holy Spirit They are followed toward your heart and mind. We pray, Lord, that this could be such a time in the life of this family of faith so that we could be alive in your spirit to serve and glorify your name. Amen.